Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellino, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian art scene. Lucia Wallace is a queer artist slash writer from Toronto, Ontario, and is a recent graduate of OCAD University's CATN program. With a BFA in dry and painting, her studio and research practices span textiles, contemporary ceramics, creative writing, and painting. Focusing on tactility and materiality, she strives to intertwine her making and writing processes. Our conversation was recorded in Hamilton, within Treaty 3 territory, on the ancestral land of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations, under the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Hey, Lucia! Hi, Rebecca! (laughs) How's it going? (laughs) Good. How are you? I'm good, just drinking my coffee, trying to caffeinate myself for the evening. Very good. Yeah, I have I have water, but it is in a coffee cup, so. Where are you right now? I'm currently in my basement apartment in West End of Toronto. Nice. <laughs> and um, I'm on my couch with a stuffed dog pillow that I've named Bean. <laughs> So what have you been doing with your practice? Like, I know we're both in grad school together. How have you been finding, like, being in grad school? Have you maintained your artistic practice? Or have you had to put the brakes on a little bit? I think that the role that my studio practice plays in my life has shifted. It's really turned into this space of, I think it's always been a space of trying to think through ideas and process what's going on around me. But I would say that at this point, my studio practice has become somewhere to go and like, I'll read something and I'll go and try and make something and then sort through the ideas. And then sometimes it's looked like, you know, watercolor painting in bed and on something (laughs) that's totally unrelated. Um, And then other times, like a lot of my research has been dealing my research for for grad school I should say has been dealing with ideas around materiality and the immaterial and things that are intangible so I had been looking at Rachel Whiteread's work and the concrete castings of space so I was trying to write about the void so I got these like vases from the thrift store and filled (laughs) them with concrete and smashed them and like (laughs) so some of it has become kind of a material research process and Mm -hmm. some of it has been more like I need some type of release to not think about stuff and do something else so yeah um that's so funny that like I knew you were thinking about the void but like to go to Rachel Whiteread who uses like monumental size sculpture like concrete something that's so hard and like very masculine and industrial which is what makes her work great but coming from you like Mm -hmm. you have such a textile based practice like how was that switching from going like from crocheting and like all the soft things to to you know working with those vases and smashing things I think I have a lot of violence inside me (laughs) like Mm. when I played Dungeons and Dragons I was always like a barbarian yes I feel like I have such this, like, I like the physicality of making things. Mm-hmm. And and while, like, the knitting and sewing and all that is very, I find quite meditative and at times very technical, I miss being in 
a build shop and like building a canvas strainer or I miss like making a a 3D sculpture and so Mm. and in part too because um one of the the artists I've been focusing on in my research is Aza El-Sadiq and her work is dealing with a lot of raw clay vessels that are rehydrated and decay in Mm. these beautiful installations and so I was thinking about the vessel form and so between Az's work and, and Rachel's work, I'm like, okay, I want to try and like make this this empty space. Like, what what does an object made from empty space look like? Or how do you make an object that's there by virtue of absence or mm-hmm. these kinds of things? So it was kind of in part from a, a practical standpoint, almost like the concrete came to mind because of, of Rachel's work, but also because you know, the hardware store happens to be <laughs> doing curbside pickup, like that kind of stuff. And so it's been nice to make this really weighty, heavy object. And I have it on like my desk and I've hopefully included pictures of it in my research. But it, yeah, I really, I'm really interested in that contrast between things that are, are quite light and the, <laughs> it's great to ship and package textile work because mm-hmm. you fold it up and you put it in an envelope, but it's, you know, it could be four by five feet and it's quite small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then to go from that to do something that's very, it's like, this is a 10 pound chunk of concrete now or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk a bit more about vessels? I feel like that's something that I've been struggling with myself. I'm like talking about like the void, like vessels are meant to be filled with something and then therefore you need that empty space. Like it makes a lot of sense with Rachel Whiteread's um, practice and like how I've understood her work. But I was wondering if you wanted to mm-hmm. chat a bit about that and like how you're approaching those thoughts. Yeah, for sure. I am deeply in love with vessels. Like I, I find them so fascinating. And in part where the, I think the interest stems from for me is it's, it's so quotidian. It's this thing that's part of our everyday lives, you know, like whether it's, in your kitchen or if it's you know something you're drinking from pouring out of like you put flowers in vases we put ashes of our loved ones in urns like Mm -hmm. all the stuff where (laughs) I love going to the thrift store and going through the homeware section and just seeing all these like little bodies that have been kind of discarded and abandoned in some way and it's like I feel I, I just and part of that too is I think you know, in my in my writing, I'm trying to capture this this idea of, to me, whenever I see a table filled with dishware and vessels, very, it, it feels like a funeral in a way. Somebody is leaving or moving, or someone's passed away, or something's being changed and cleared out. And so, for me, the two significant memories I have of that is when my grandmother moved out of her home into uh, the retirement residence where she lived for the last three or four years of her life. And I remember she was like, you know, take whatever you want. And all the ants are, are divvying things up and some stuff's being donated and stuff, some stuff's being taken. And it was like, I know I want to have something from this space, but I don't really know what. And I ended up with this little kind of palm sized light blue pinch pot that one of my aunts made when she was a kid. And oh, I just lovely. have it. And I'm like, I can't get rid of this. Like, Aunt Carol made this. So, um, <laughs> and then the other time that that happened in a significant way was when um, a former partner and I 
our relationship ended and and he was moving out and so there's this process of like taking all this dishware that he had contributed to our shared space Mm -hmm. and and swaddling it all and newspaper and packaging it up and it was like okay this is the end you are leaving kind of feeling so the I mean the vessel for me is in a very personal way that's kind of how I relate to it Mm -hmm. um and then what I've I found out basically is it has a very specific kind of exhibitionary history within the museum and you know when you're putting an object which is associated with craft and with the domestic and also with archaeology you know we could talk about like shards of ceramics and you know what I found is shards ceramic shards and pottery have been used to kind of like rebuild past civilizations right like you can take this this fragment of a thing and start to trace back what happened and it's maybe it's a bit easier when you have the the full form right you have something that's intact you can maybe get more information from that but it's so it's just so associated with like human life for so long is this form and then to put that in the gallery space it takes on all these connotations of art and you know contemporary art and all that and it brings with it all this history and this personal um these personal stories that I think a lot of a lot of people have just by virtue of like you know if you drink water out of a glass Mm -hmm. you you interacted with a vessel right like things (laughs) um things like that so it's I'm really interested in this object which has so many different associations embedded into it and I feel like it's such an emotional and in a way kind of melancholic object Mm -hmm. because as you're saying it's like there has to be this absence of material to make it Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah. <laughs> I hope I, I keep going on like blah 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 blah. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, and I think it's really interesting to me, like thinking about it in a museum, are like are vessels usually presented empty in museums or are they filled with things? Like I'm I'm very much like not an art historian in the formal sense like yourself. So I'm just like curious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's what I what I've started to research and I'm very much at like the surface of it mm-hmm. is there's kind of different ways that that objects are presented or vessels are presented. Sometimes I feel like I've seen them, they'll be in vitrines and they'll be kind of like sequestered away a bit. And, you know, they're, they're just, they're displayed as this, this object, which is to be looked at, especially in the, in the gallery, you're looking at this thing, even though it's so tactile. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, there's a lot of, ceramic objects where their purpose is to be decorative Mm. so you might have a decorative vase or platter or something like that or you know I my mother's wedding dishes are in the cupboard at home but we don't use them (laughs) even though they had been and could be used right yeah um and so it's when I'm thinking of I'm thinking like the Gardner Museum for example um when I think of their maybe more historical displays. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think there's anything in them 
but then when you know moving into like the more contemporary works the bra exhibition at the gardener is kind of what stemmed part of this research for me mm. and that's all about raw clay so like the vessel form itself has been used since like the night I mean notably I guess I think it's been used before that as well but mm-hmm. 1960s 1970s it's starting to be used as this kind of like sculptural medium within art mm-hmm. and then raw clay was being used at the time as well and this kind of like I'm I'm thinking I, so uh, Dr. Sequoia Miller kind of talks about this in the raw broadsheet for the exhibition that like raw clay is associated with like scatology and there's this abject quality to the to the mm. material and you know it's there's artists who are starting to use that material again in a different in a different way and the thing that I found particularly striking about Aza El Sadiq's work is her installation called Measure of One for the raw exhibition is made up of this really beautiful steel framework the steel shelving that there's a, the tallest section is at the center and there's all these rows of raw clay vessels. Hmm. And then there's more shelving that kind of goes down the sides. It feels, it feels very like an altar almost. Hmm. It feels very like, like I'm <laughs> in my note, I'm not really a, a super like organized religion person, but I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in a, in like a, in a church or a temple or something like that huh. when I was in front of it. It was very, it was very emotional actually. Um, wow. And there's this pool of water at the front and it has this water. I'm not describing it properly, but it has this water pump, right? And every, on a cycle, I think it was maybe every 15 minutes or something, mm-hmm. it, it spritz the raw vessels. So they were being rehydrated. Wow in this time-based way and then as they started to fall apart they were moved to these these side shelves to be displayed and so it was and again so they had this space inside them right they they were hollow and then as they started to fall apart like all these new kind of entry points were being formed Hmm. and um but there's a really beautiful interview that dr miller and as lcd did about raw and her process and I mean, she speaks so eloquently and beautifully about her work that it's, yeah, definitely worth a listen. That's just on, like, the Gardner YouTube page, I believe. And how does this, like, absorbing all this stuff and, like, looking at other people's practices and and how vessels have been presented, how does that impact, like, your own artistic practice? Do you find that you've been thinking about display differently? Obviously, you've been thinking about material differently, but um, (laughs) how how much has this affected you? Oh, my gosh. I... (laughs) Well, I think to maybe go back to like pre-grad school, I initially, the proposal I, I submitted in my application process for grad school, I initially wanted to write about textiles mm-hmm. and write about like queer textile artists in Toronto and their practices and what they're doing. And, you know, at the time, my undergrad thesis I did like drawing and painting at OCAD and my undergrad thesis was very much based around textiles and using textiles as like a painting medium and displaying it like a painting and all this stuff. And um, as I started to go through grad school, I recognized that like what I'm, I'm engaging with craft Mm -hmm. and I don't have the craft 
lexicon. I don't have the the theory base or the knowledge base. Hmm. And I'm very much coming from a, a fine art painting perspective. And yeah. I think that definitely still influences the way I write and think. But I recognize that I had a kind of gap in that knowledge. And as I started to work with um, Dory Millerson, who is amazing, and I think we were saying before, um, uh, she is a professor at OCAD. And at the time that I started working with her, she was the chair of the Material Art Design Program. I'm not sure if she still is at this point. I don't know how that works. <laughs> um, and is a maker herself. And so we were working with her and she was helping me get some of this theory base. And then in that process, I like, was visiting the Gardner Museum, visiting the Textile Museum, starting to think more about display in these specific spaces. I just more and more got really interested in ceramics and this three-dimensional form. And it slowly became more and more about this, I guess, finding an object to think through ideas of memory mm. and loss and nostalgia almost. Mm -hmm. And textiles are very much an like that's a medium for me that's about that because my grandmother taught me how to knit and how to sew and, and all that stuff. But I think I got to a point where because I'm still thinking about all that stuff in my studio practice, I was like, you know, I want to do some research and reading about a medium I'm not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the ceramics became like the thing that I was super interested in. And so it, it's definitely, it actually answered the question. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's influenced me in that I am really curious to explore more three-dimensional forms in my mm. studio following this I really want to you know there's a few textile projects I have kind of burning in the back of my brain I've been dying to do like I I love the the signage near the mocha along the if you walk down Sterling Road mm -hmm. there's like the signage on the the chocolate factory that says yeah. like Kit Kat or like batter making or cream making like, I want to make like giant like knit versions of those oh my gosh yes <laughs> um like I just love it so much and I love I love signage and I want to like make all these knit pieces of signage and that kind of thing but I also am really interested in in oh well you know what the one thing that I have been doing that I haven't I haven't mentioned yet and I don't know if there are pictures on my website of this is I'm really interested in the vessel form and I'm very interested in, in showing presence and absence of this, this object. And so something I started to do was I started to crochet around bottles mm -hmm. and then take them off like this kind of snake skin. They're and so phallic. Every time he makes those, I'm like, this is so phallic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I'm yeah <laughs> I don't I don't disagree with you I think that's kind of part of what I find really fun and exciting yeah and kind of like dirty about the <laughs> no it yeah. fully it looks like looks you're like making like a crocheted foreskin for these vessels <laughs> yeah it's really I really enjoy it <laughs> um, but my kind of like I guess 
like the thing I want to do at this point now is like I want to keep making those crocheted like covers mm-hmm. for for objects or vessels take them off and then I want to cast the inside space whether that be through plaster might be mm. a better move for me going forward um but cast the inside of that space and then to get the the casting out you have to break the glass right and yeah. so I love the idea of there being this kind of like this tracing of the outside of the object in textile and then the inside of that space being cast in like a solid material mm-hmm. and then having the the actual object itself be destroyed in that process i i Weiwei is another artist i've yeah. been looking at in my research in particular dropping a han dynasty urn from 1995 mm-hmm. which is you know that's a whole conversation in and of itself and, yeah you know i have i have feelings about that piece as much as i am so interested in it and i find it really inspiring it's also Again, it's very difficult to kind of sit with. Yeah. Um, in, in Aza's work and in Ai Weiwei's work, it's like there's this, this like there's this need for destruction to create the piece. Mm-hmm. And as mu- as exciting and as kind of engaging as that is, like it's such a good feeling to yeah. break a, a vase, like to break glass. I'm like, oh yes, like it feels good. But it's- then it's also like, oh my gosh, like we've lost something in the process of that as well and so it's like the duality of this kind of excitement of chaos and this kind of sadness of loss that are all mixed together and I want to try and make myself feel that Mm -hmm. more in my art practice (laughs) no I think like that duality of like creation and destruction is very powerful and like I, I see Ai Weiwei coming at it from that but also like to destroy artwork or to destroy an object that you've spent so much time with, like crocheting their outsides, has like a lot of emotional catharsis to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the distinction between destroying a found object versus destroying an object that that I've made with my own hand mm-hmm. is, is very different, has different implications and, and all that, that, right? Yeah, for sure. And I actually, what I, what I did in the process of, of research was... As I was saying, I'm not I'm not a ceramicist. I've you know I did summer camp as a kid and I made some like pinch pots here and there. Like I, I love clay, I really enjoy it, but it's not it hasn't been a part of my my studio practice or my like I guess capital P practice. Yeah, I ended up getting a take home kit from this this pottery studio near me and made these vessels and got them fired and I lived with them in my apartment for a while because I'm like oh my god I made this really like I made this bowl I made this little jug this is so cool and then I had a meeting recently with with Dory Millerson and we were talking about she was explaining how it's like she heard from someone and then she told me kind of thing but there, she she expressed this idea of from what she'd been told when someone's learning to make ceramics mm-hmm they're told to break their favorite pot. <gasps> really? And that's not, yeah. And that's maybe not like, I'm not quoting her perfectly, but this, mm-hmm. this idea, she brought into my brain, this idea of breaking your favorite pot as a oh. way to like, get used to like the ceramic process. And I was like, Oh no, I know what I need to do now. <laughs> and so I gathered up my little, my beautiful little white lumpy vessels oh, no. that I had made. And I, and I took them to the, the courtyard at my studio space and I like documented them 
it, it felt very, I was very emotional. Mm -hmm. I'm like getting emotional talking about it now. But I, I took the, and I laid out this white sheet and I took pictures of them at all these different angles. And then I like smashed them all and I laid out all the shards together. And, you know, you can't tell which shard is from which vessel at this point. Mm -hmm. They're laid out together and I documented them. And I was like, wow, like it felt, maybe it's kind of lame. It felt very humbling. Mm -hmm. like, wow, this is like, and it, and it totally changed my perspective on my research, I think, too, because it, in a, in a, from a first person perspective, I experienced what I've been trying to communicate as far as like, there is something both sad and beautiful in like, destroying an object. And, and something I, that's something I, I would love to touch on if, if we can too, is there's very much this association with the body and the ceramic vessel. Mm. And it's, uh, as, as Elsabeek brought up this beautiful quote of, um, uh, the, the God who made humans was a potter or this notion that like yeah. humans are created from the same material as, as vessels. And so, and, and in my kind of like, I don't know, emo kid, like interpretation <laughs> of it, like I took it as like, Oh, we are both, like we are from the earth the same way that clay is yeah. but I also kind of took it as I think there's something I think there's like an emptiness at the core of what it means to be human as well mm. whether that's like the stomach or whether that's like an emotional way I think that like for me so much of my life is about trying to like fill some type of absence whether it's through making or whether it's through loving people or through connecting it's like yeah I don't know I think that like it takes it takes a lot of work to be human <laughs> yeah um, and I think that it's really pain like I don't know being alive is really like beautiful and, and painful and mm -hmm. like death is this really difficult thing I think to talk about and at the same time it's so integral to all our experiences you know having I think as I've gotten older and having experienced more um family members passing away or mm -hmm. experiencing you know watching watching people I love experience loss yeah. has been very informative I think to my art practice I think in ways I'm not 100% sure I could articulate at this point but it's yeah, it's <laughs> so part of so part of life and it's so indescribable and I think that in a way I find I'm not somebody who personally I don't I don't really believe in an afterlife and maybe that will change over time but I think that to me I think when I die I will no longer be conscious and you know that kind of thing yeah and like your um, your vessel will return to the earth kind of deal and that in that like cycle of energy is that yeah I think that's where I'm at as far as like I I find it very reassuring in a way the mm -hmm. thought of like my body going back into the earth or whether my you know going towards something else and becoming something else and I think that that's what makes, yeah, I think loss is what makes life 
so precious. Yeah. And I think through experiencing loss, it's made me appreciate the people in my life so much more because it's like, this is so finite. Like I, <laughs> I have a really vivid memory of like, there was um, someone who I was, I was romantically involved with. And I remember we were like in, in his apartment and it started to rain outside and we're like listening to music. I just started like crying, Aww. bawling my eyes. I was like, what's wrong? And I'm just like, I just have, like, I felt so like human in that moment. And mm-hmm. I was so like, wow, I feel so fortunate that this, like this moment is being like captured. Um, and I'm not, I'm not with that person any longer, but yeah. that like really stuck in my brain is this really beautiful moment. And it's just, life is to me, this collection of all these different stories. And I think that that's the art I'm most interested in engaging with and making mm-hmm. is art that kind of looks at and deals with the messiness of being a human. <laughs> this week's podcast recommendation is The Art of Craft, episode 13, Sandcool Clayworks. Not many businesses can say that they date back to 1912. Sandcool Clayworks is a family-run business based in Ohio. On this episode, host Barkley Hunt speaks to Anne Ang, who brings decades of experience and knowledge to her craft as a custom clay maker, extruder, and kiln technician. Anne is seen as a leader in her field and is seen as the go-to person for clay block projects that involve custom molds or extrusion on a large scale. Yeah, and I think nostalgia seems to play like a a large role, like looking back and trying to use moments in the past to understand your present. Like, I think the shattering of the vases and and understanding that like beautiful moments can end and and beautiful lives can end. And that doesn't mean that they weren't beautiful, but like they're gone forever now. And that makes them even more special. Like, I was wondering if you're intentionally engaging with nostalgia to like connect with your audience or if that's something that you're doing just to like process your own work yeah no that's a really good question I think it's I definitely connect to it absolutely Mm -hmm. I think it's it's something I connect to but it's maybe not something I've explicitly written about in my studio practice or in my my research um but I feel a very strong connection I think that like for me like nostalgia is is very present in my day-to-day life in a really significant way Mm -hmm. um I I was I was very fortunate growing up to have my my grandmother my paternal grandmother grandma Joyce Wallace um but I never I I was born after both of my mother's parents and my dad's dad had passed away Mm -hmm. and so there are these people who I feel, I feel very intimately connected to, but I've never met. And so I've only known my grandma Ivy through photographs and through, I had like her navy blue leather purse, my dress up box as a kid or stories from my mom. And like, so there's, I have this collection of like Polaroid photos from my paternal grandfather because he worked in construction. So I have like pictures of um, the like the mountain at Canada's Wonderland being built, <laughs> like the scaffolding yeah. of that that structure, and it's like this. I think so much of like my 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 life 
connected to my family is about trying to kind of like feel connected and understand these people who I I can only connect to through objects mm-hmm. and that definitely informs my my studio practice and my approach to making and my paternal grandmother so the grandmother I did meet grandma Joyce mm. I have objects in my like I have pin cushions that were hers I have clothing that was hers and it's like this really it's this this feeling of I know that these objects are not her but I feel like I get to be a little bit closer to her when I interact with them yeah something in I'm trying to kind of sort through and I don't know if I do it in a very succinct way in my my grad research but it's something I want to keep thinking about is um I I really love the work of Aaron Manning Mm -hmm. and there's a book that was introduced to me called Politics of Touch. Mm. And and in it, there's this really beautiful idea of that our skin is something that's constantly shifting and changing. And she talks about this idea of becoming. And if I'm reaching towards someone to touch them, the person that you touch is not the person you reach towards because in that space of reaching they've become something else and shifted and if that makes sense I think that's yeah I think that's an accurate summary (laughs) but I'm trying to kind of work through this idea of like what happens when you're reaching towards an object that was once held by somebody else Hmm. are we reaching for me it feels as if I'm trying to reach into the past yeah in this way that can't be reciprocated and so it's this touch that never gets satisfied so trying to like touch this surrogate skin of the object and and connect with someone but you can never you can never relieve that because that person's physical body is gone and so thinking about that in in a personal way with with my grandmother's objects but again thinking about that with if we're looking at an archaeological piece or a, a, a shard of pottery it's like this was if it's a handmade vessel this was made by somebody else yeah. who whose hands probably didn't look too dissimilar from my own and i'm holding this now and that is so emotionally overwhelming to think about like yeah um you know i don't think a ceramicist from the han dynasty anticipated their work being smashed in 1995 by an artist right like yeah 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 so it's really it's really complicated and I'm I could talk about this stuff for hours but (laughs) well I think like the for me like I wanted to be an artist because I saw that it was not a job that you retired from and it was also not something that you were not like you're always an artist even if you're sleeping but this idea also mm-hmm. of like putting objects out into the world that are going to be that exist past you like artists work gets so much more expensive as soon as they die because they can no longer produce yeah. anything and i just keep thinking about like um especially in domestic spaces like if you move into your house and you inherit your mom's wedding china are you going to dine off of it like how does it change moving from like person to person as as people keep like shifting throughout the world like these objects stay and those that's really powerful I think more and more just as I've gotten a tiny bit older I 
am interested in kind of maybe the art of living, hmm. if that's not too cliche, but like, <laughs> I'm really interested in the way I keep my space or, or organize and decorate. I love, like, I love going for a walk in the evening. Mm-hmm. And when somebody has like their blinds open and their yes. living room light on, I love like, you know, I don't stop, but I'll kind of slow down. and like, you know, the odd time that I've, I've been in high rises. I love looking out the window and seeing like, you know, everyone has all these glass walls. It's like, okay, where are the pet dogs and mm-hmm. who's made their bed and who hasn't, who's working on a desk <laughs> or, you know, the odd time you see a little bum or something. It's like, oh my goodness, like, <laughs> sir. Sir, your bum is out. Lines are open. <laughs> yeah, that happened to me at work once. I was leaving the office and there's a, a apartment building across the way. I was like, oh my God. Like, That's so <laughs> I was funny. very embarrassed. Um, but, but my, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that I, I think we can, as a, as an artist, we're both like we're both artists, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll say we as in you and I. Cool. I, I think it's easy to, well, for myself, I think it's easy to feel like maybe I'm not a good artist because I haven't made a tangible piece in X number of months, mm. or maybe I'm not an artist anymore because I haven't posted on Instagram or I haven't done this creative output. But I really think that like being an artist in a lot of ways is a particular frame of mind yeah and yeah. when you move through the world with that lens of like searching for what could be artistic or what could be a metaphor then I think that that you know you can go you can go for a walk and you can find piles of trash and be like that's a beautiful installation <laughs> yeah and like that's why I love um like Claudia Slogar Rick's practice and then her partner uh Jessica Price Eisner who like runs that meager beaver account Jess just goes on walks mm. and takes pictures of like the incidental artworks or like compositions that she finds and I find that it's really captured like meager beaver the account has really captured how I walk through the world and like how those two artists take pictures is really informed. Like my camera roll got so much <laughs> thicker when I started being friends with them. <laughs> I take pictures of everything now. And it's like finding beauty in the world mm-hmm. is very much like an artist's job. Or not even beauty, just like interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's, I love, um, I think it's like a TikTok trend <laughs> or an Instagram trend where it's like anything can be an album cover and <laughs> people will take these kind of silly photos and then they'll put the like the the fil- the like parental advisory oh filter or you know it, it's all these like kind of silly pictures of people like on like a tractor or it's like <laughs> oh you found like an apple core on the ground or, um and I, I think it's kind of I find it really entertaining because you know I think it's being um I guess facetious a little bit, but I'm like, it's true. I'm like, guys, anything can be an album cover. Like, it's it just true. Depends. Like, it's the the way you contextualize something can totally change it. Or I feel like I remember it. I love the idea. I'm sure people, I'm sure someone or, or folks have done this, but going around like making um like little exhibition labels and just going around and like putting them on stuff in yes. public, I think would be very fun. <sighs> No, it's it's so nice. Like, and I think that art in the public sphere has been so important in this lockdown. And like you said, like posting on Instagram is one thing, but like to walk past, I don't know, like a piece of gum with an exhibition label beside it, like that's hilarious. And you just find it in the real world. (laughs) 
Yeah. Like I, I, I think part of it too, like I grew, I mean, I grew up in a pretty small, a, a small town, like, you know, not the smallest ever, but you know, not, yeah. I didn't grow up in Toronto basically. Mm-hmm. And so I think the thing I love about Toronto is you can, you can go on all these different walks or you can go on the same little route over and over again. You'll see something different every time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm at the point where I do love my hometown despite having wanted to leave so badly as a teenager. <laughs> like, I think the beauty of the place I grew up is you can go for a walk and you might only see six people, but five of those six people will say hi to you. Yeah. Um, which is a totally different space than to be, you know, I used to live downtown Toronto and like getting used to it, it's like, oh, people aren't going to smile at you on the street where you walk past. I know. And that's not a, a and it's not necessarily a, a personal thing or a bad thing, but I think that makes finding pockets of like sweetness in a city so much more precious when you can make a connection with someone or like one of my favorite like thrifting memories is I found this like really <laughs> it's kind of, I feel bad for saying it's kind of terrible but it's kind of terrible it's just like someone made this very large painting of the birth of Venus amazing and it's like the faces are really gooey and it's kind of it's <laughs> probably like a cumulative project for like a high school student or yeah. a passion project or something like that. But I'm like, this is so beautiful and great. <laughs> and I found it for like 30 bucks at the thrift store and I carried it home. And this other like really cool, funky person stopped and was like, Oh my gosh, where did you get that? Did you make that? And we had this like really cute little combo on a street corner. Yeah. It's like my favorite part of my living room is this like amazing, kind of amazing, terrible painting. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. I find like that's so f- moving to Hamilton. I need to remember to like nod and smile at people. But like when I first moved to Toronto from Guelph, I had to remember not to thank the bus driver. Otherwise, people would look at me like I was a serial killer. So it, it's <laughs> it's definitely like the attitude of living in different spaces. But also like the beauty of being in Toronto is that there are just so many people. So the chances are. Like, yes, you are going to run into someone who's kind of amazing or, like, quirky. Like, I used to work in the distillery district, and there was this one um, homeless woman who was always reading. And we both ended up at the Mm. bus stop together, and someone had left a book there. And I initially picked it up, and then she came over and was, like, talking to me about it because I started reading. I was like, actually, I just found it on this bench. Like, do you want it? And we, like, did a book exchange. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it's like – yeah, it's so fun. Like, I saw her every day, and to have, like, this conversation and to realize that we both read the same books and have the same taste. She read way more Stephen King than me, but, like, it's just so beautiful when you have those moments of connection. Oh, my gosh. I thought, that, to- that reminds me, this is, like, a bit of a tangent, but, like, um, I mentioned when we were, we were speaking earlier, I was, I was really fortunate to do my third year of undergrad in courts, Italy, and... My one of my very very good friends now, um, Sarah Zanchetta. She's on Instagram. Um, <laughs> she's textiles too. But we were we went on this like fall break trip where we took the train down to southern Italy. We were on the train to go to Bari, which is this beautiful like Th- that's where I'm from, Italian town. Really? Yeah, Bari, oh the heel of the boot. Um, my my yeah. uncle made uh, all the lampposts that wrap around the bay. 
Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. And there's a whole street named it there's a street Casalino and like all of my family live in old marble houses there. I love that that you've been there. My friend Sarah and I we were like this is beautiful. Yeah, we we want to go back there. Um but on this train trip, we were in this the train, I think it's like pods of four, right? Mm-hmm. So two two sets of seats facing each other. Yeah. And Sarah and I were across from each other and then beside us was this um this older Italian woman and she was like working on a sewing project or a knitting project. And I was working on this little like embroidery project and I had this pair of little like travel scissors. Right. Yeah. And so it came this thing where it's like, we couldn't like really verbally communicate with each other, yeah. but she was like kind of gestured to me of like, can I borrow your scissors? And so we were sharing <laughs> these scissors back and forth. And so it's really cute. kind of, I was like, Oh my gosh, it was really beautiful. Like, like Sarah and I still talk about it of this, like, yeah, I, I'd like to think it kind of speaks to like the, you know, craft and like connections between like different folks being so like transcendent of language. Yeah, like the only people that notice, I have these two tone pants. So like one leg of the pants is bleached and the other is um, just like a, a dark denim. And the only people mm-hmm. that comment on any of the clothes that like I've made or, or mixed up myself have always been older women who are also invested in crafting practices. So it'll be like people at the oh, grocery wow. store being like, did you make those yourself? Because they can recognize like the handmade of it. And I just mm-hmm. I feel such a like such solidarity with like older women who still craft. I'm like, yes, I want to grow mm-hmm. up to be you. <laughs> yeah, I I feel that like. I, as I was saying earlier, like I didn't meet three of my four grandparents, but mm-hmm. I was so fortunate to have a lot of older women in my life, whether it be through aunts, but we, um, my parents' house, there's uh, an apartment in the upstairs floor. And growing up, there was a woman lived at, who lived up there named Betty. But then we also had a next door neighbor named Betty. So there's <laughs> Betty upstairs and Betty next door. Amazing. And then there was a woman named Sharon who is part of my life who who would take care of us sometimes and so it's like I feel like my brother and I got all of these like honorary grandmothers Aww. it was really yeah yeah and like Betty Betty next door is like going to be 103 damn this summer yeah I think 103 or 104 but she's like over 100 <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> so yeah really really special beautiful person both of them all of them so your art practice is like really, really informed by like your own personal journey and like connection to different objects. And like, that's what you're thinking about intentionally as you're making and, and planning these projects. I think, I think it in some ways informs it in a very direct way. I do a lot of journaling mm-hmm. and writing. And so I, I really find it cathartic to like reflect in, in that way and then I think that will influence to some degree what I end up making yeah but not always I think ultimately where that maybe circles back into things is it's not necessarily exactly what I'm making in a material way mm-hmm. um, but I think the intention and the purpose of why I want to make art is you know I think on one level I want to make it for myself it very much is like my way of processing the world yeah um but I I also want to there's art that I make for myself that I keep private and Mm -hmm. then there's work that I make with the intention of showing other 
people because ultimately I want to connect with people. And I think that when it's possible, being vulnerable and being open with others Mm -hmm. is such an asset. And in my mind, it's like, okay, if, if I can try and imbue this object with sensitivity and love and vulnerability, then I, I do, I, I think people feel that when they see work. And I think that it makes it easier to talk with people. And I think that's ultimately what I want. Like, I, of course, it's great when people see my artwork or like it enough to, to purchase it. That's like the biggest compliment to me is having someone like something I've made enough to buy it and put it in their home. Mm-hmm. That's like so humbling and beautiful. Um, as nice as that is, I think I, I want to facilitate conversations and connections with people. That's ultimately what I really, really care about. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist that you would like to be interviewed, would like to correct and or fact check a past episode, or would just like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at rebeccaecasolino at gmail.com. Thanks to the OCAD Student Union for your financial support. And thank you to all of our patrons for your ongoing support. It truly does help me avoid burnout and keeps this podcast rolling. If you would like to support Hopping the Fence, please visit our Patreon to subscribe. Check out the show notes for more details. If you can't donate, no worries. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Audio editing for Hopping the Fence by Emily Reimer. Original artwork by Alex Gregory. And original music by Jessica Price Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.